0: Have you ever been angry with God for His mercy? No, I'm not talking about His mercy to you or His mercy to a loved one. We all love that. (laughs) But I'm talking about your frustration with God when He shows mercy to somebody whom you consider to be a rascal, when He shows mercy on someone that you think that he ought to be strung by his ears in the public place. You know what I'm talking about. But let me make a confession to you up front. And my confession to you is this. If I was writing my own biography like Jonah was writing his in this book, I would have stopped at chapter (laughs) 3. Ending at chapter 3 would have just made me, I mean, you would have presented me in the best light. Uh, Ending with chapter 3 would have proved that I'm a guy who always put his best foot forward. I mean, after all... The movies that we all love are the ones that always has a happy ending, right? Even in the business world, we say the best deal is when everybody wins, when it's a win-win deal. We like a happy ending. We like a a fair deal. But why in the world did Jonah include chapter 4 in this book? At the end of chapter 3, he left us on high. At the end of chapter 3... He left us with the account of the greatest revival that is known in biblical history. And then he goes on to chapter 4 as if to say, now, let me show you my dark side. Now, let me show you my shallowness. Let me show you my self-centeredness. Let me show you my pittiness. Let me show you my selfishness. Let me show you my Achilles heels. Let me show you my loveless heart. Listen, there is not a PR firm in the world would have allowed chapter 4 to be written. (laughs) There there is not a spin doctor, worse, his salt, that would have... Included chapter 4 in the book of Jonah. There is not a ghost writer who's worth his pay. That would have included that part of a famous preacher's biography. (laughs) Because we enter this thing that says, show them the good stuff. Shows them the strong character traits. Show them my strength. Show them the successes. Show them the greatness of the man. Show them not your weakness, show them not your warts, show them not that you're sweating. I'm sure somebody would have said to Jonah, Jonah, if you're going to have to write chapter 4, my friend, listen, just summarize it in the following manner. Uh, Just spin it to make it look good and, and say, well, you know, after three days of preaching all over Nineveh from one end to the other, I was so exhausted, and I said some things I'm not proud of. (laughs) I mean, he would have said to him, man, just say that you were exhausted after all the energy that you expended traveling for three days preaching in Nineveh, that you just said few things that you didn't really mean. (laughs) Let's just tell him that's You know what? I am every day, I am grateful to God the Holy Spirit every single day. And I thank God the Holy Spirit who moved the men and women of God to write the Scripture. I am so thankful to Him every single day of my life that He did not take these men and women of God in the Bible and took them through a laundromat and cleaned them up and washed them off and then starched them and then wrapped them with some cellophane paper and then placed them on a pedestal. And said, Now you be like them. That would have been frustrating to every one of us, certainly to me, I can tell you that. (laughs) In fact, I am grateful to God the Holy Spirit that the account of the lives of the apostles that were presented to us as they were, not as supermen, but as men. With all of their weaknesses, oh, many times did I identify with Peter, the, the foot and mouth disease, my goodness. How many times I used to identify with John and James, the sons of thunder. You know, that's how they got that nickname, sons of thunder. You know, read about them when you go home at Luke chapter 9, because what I'm going to tell you about them is really my, my interpretation, Okay. It just it's just my interpretation. It's a Yusuf thing, so take it from me. Go and read it at home for yourself. And Jesus sends him on to a city in Samaria, and he said, Guys, the team and I are going to follow. You go over there, and you get us hotel reservation, and we'll follow you the next day. So what happens? They go into the, the hotel, and they're trying to make a reservation for Jesus and his team in Samaria. And what happened? They kicked him out of town. They said, get out of here. We're not going to let you stay in our town. We want anything to do with you. And you know what happened? John, I mean, again, this is a rough translation, but you get it. (laughs) He just went out on the corner, and he waited for Jesus. Man, he couldn't wait for him to get here. And as soon as Jesus arrived, he said, now, Jesus, before you do anything in this town, I want you to call heaven and bring fire and burn everybody in this town. Burn the miserable people. Rough translation, but you get it. Burn them, scorch them, turn them into ashes. And Jesus says, what? What? Yeah, burn them up. Get rid of them. They are bad people. Well, beloved, listen to me. Jesus had a different thing in mind for Samaria. He had a different thing in mind for the Samaritans. For John himself, that same John writes in his gospel in chapter 4, and he said, Jesus was tired, and then he sat at the well, and there a Samaritan woman came and had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then... She testified into the city, and she went and she told them about the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, the one who forgave her her sins, the one who loved her unconditionally. And the Bible said the whole city came out, and they all believed in Jesus. See, that's what he had in mind, salvation, not scorching of the city. And that's why, to me, it's really incredible when you think about it, that it's that same Apostle John who wrote more about love than any of the other Apostles. The same Son of Thunder who wanted to call fire from heaven to burn the Samaritans. is the one who wrote more about love. Read his epistles than any of them. Beloved, listen to me. What I'm going to tell you is really important and it's, it's the truth. It's easy for me. It's easy for me to pick and choose whom, upon whom God should have mercy and upon whom he shouldn't. It's easy for me to decide who is a candidate for mercy and who's not. And I suspect that it's easy for you too. I want you to hear me right on this one. The book of Jonah was not about Jonah. The book of Jonah is about the God of Jonah. The book of Jonah is about the God of mercy. The book of Jonah is about the God of grace. The book of Jonah is about the God who is totally sovereign, who is in total control, who is perfect in His knowledge, who is perfect in His wisdom. The God whose ways are different from our ways as far as the east from the west. Poor Jonah. Poor Jonah. He cared more about the shading of that vine than the fact that tens of thousands of people were saved. Does not break your heart. He was more happy with the vine and the shade than with salvation. You know, have you ever thought about this? I I tell you, through the years, I've always been amazed in what makes people happy and what really makes people angry? And when somebody said that makes you happy, well, good for you. You know, God bless you. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't make me happy at all. But it makes you happy. That's fine. I mean, well, that makes you angry. I mean, it's not even important. Well, that makes you angry. And the question for you is this: I hope you never rest until you ask, you answer the question to yourself: What makes you happy? What really makes you happy? Are you more happy when you see people saved or when you only get your personal needs met? Are you more happy when you experience the desired change in your circumstances or when you see the unchanging God being glorified in somebody's life? What makes you happy? What makes you happy can tell more about you and tell more about me than anything else. Let me ask the same question a different way. What's your vine? What's your vine? We know what Jonah's vine was. It was the shade that helped him from the scorching heat of that part of the world. What is your vine? What's your focus? Is it the blessings or the blesser? What's your vine? Because we're so blessed right and left. And therefore, our greatest danger, listen, our greatest danger is making our blessings to be the object of our worship instead of the blesser. Jonah was more happy with the vine than the God of the vine. And beloved, you know and I know there are so many professing Christians today who get so hung up on the minor issues of life, not the major ones. There are so many professing Christians today who get hung up on the things that are not necessary for salvation than the lost souls that are going to end up in a Christless eternity. There are so many professing Christians today who are hung up on style and not substance. There are so many professing Christians today who are more happy with self-gratification than with gospel preaching. There are so many professing Christians today who are more concerned about their likes and their dislikes in the church than reaching the lost and equipping the saints. There are so many professing Christians today who are so hung up On finding somebody who will agree with them. Than finding somebody who's going to rebuke them. And exhort them to live in obedience. No wonder Jesus said. When the Son of God returns. Will he find faith in the earth? We are looking at the vine. Instead of the God of the vine. We're more interested In the shade that the vine is providing than serving the will of the God of the vine. We're more concerned about our comfort, our convenience, and our concerns than seeing lost people getting saved eternally. And here's what normally happens. Listen to me. Please listen carefully. When you become so preoccupied with your vine and, and something happened to your vine, you're going to become filled with resentment at the loss of your vine. Whatever your vine may be, and your vine and your vine, if it, all vines are different. My vine is different from yours. And when we become resentful at the loss of that vine, whatever it is for you, we become irrational we become unproductive, we become touchy and be quick to take offense, and we become bitter and complainers, we well out in self-pity, and we develop a distorted picture of reality. Jonah became irrational over simply a loss of the shading of the vine. He became irrational. He wanted to die. You say, I mean, die over the vine? Well, ask yourself the question, what makes you irrational? I know this is a fact of life. Well, when husbands and wives get into some altercation, most often over some silly thing. But that's where Jonah was. That's where he was. He wanted to die, and he wanted to say to him, Jonah! You should be ecstatic that tens of thousands of people were saved as a result of your proclamation. Jonah, you should have been rejoicing, my friend. Jonah, you should have been praying to God to let you stay in Nineveh so you can disciple all these people. Jonah, you should have been on cloud nine now that you have fulfilled the purpose of God in your life. You should be singing your heart of praise and adoration and thanksgiving instead of wanting to die over a silly little vine. Now, beloved, let me tell you something. In case you think that I'm standing here judging and condemning Jonah, I really am not. I'm Truthfully, I'm not condemning him at all. Do you know why? Because there's a little Jonah in every one of us, including your pastor. We are discontented people instead of being the most contented people. We are so preoccupied with the blessings instead of the blesser. We are so ungrateful about the things that we don't have instead of being grateful for all the things that we have. Listen carefully, please. If you are not reconciled to the will of God in your life, listen carefully, please, I want to help you (laughs) If you are not reconciled to the will of God in your life, I can tell you with assurance that nothing, nothing is going to make you happy. Nothing. You can own half of the world, and you're still not happy. When you are not reconciled to the will of God in your life, the smallest disappointment, the least offense, the smallest unintentional mistake on the part of others... It's gonna set you off. It will set you off. And you'll be spending your life doing nothing but wallowing and murmuring and complaining and criticizing and feeling sorry for yourself. And you never serve the purpose of God in your life. It's like the two guys who were playing golf, and one of them was one of those people who are always complaining about something. And, and he said to his friend, he said, You know, one day I'm going to ask God why He allows poverty and injustice and unbelief when He could do something about it. And his friend said, well, why don't you? He said, because I'm afraid that He may ask me the same question. That He may ask me the same question. Hear me right on this one. It is easy to hide from the call of God upon your life. It's easy. You know that. It's easy to withdraw from the battlefield. It's easy to abandon your mission post. It is easy to be a deserter in the army of God. And the best place to do that is in the church pews. Jonah was so consumed with anger at God's goodness on Nineveh (laughs) that the slightest thing just ticked him off and threw him into a hissy fit. He was like a wounded bear. A wounded bear lashes out at the slightest provocation, even if it was imaginary. If you spend as much time studying Jonah like I have in the last few weeks, and you couldn't help but conclude that Jonah really was not a very happy guy. He really was not. I think we see him happy once when he got that shade divine over his head. And it's the only time we see him happy. (laughs) I mean, Jonah is so opinionated that if God doesn't do what he says to God to do, he's just not going to cooperate. It's not his idea. He's not for it. He was unhappy with his first commissioning. He was unhappy with the storm. He was unhappy in the belly of the fish. He was unhappy with the second commissioning. He was unhappy when God showed mercy on Nineveh. He was unhappy when God responded to the Ninevites' repentance. Even when he obeyed, listen carefully, even when he obeyed, it was a reluctant obedience. We saw him obeying, but it was a reluctant obedience. But you know what? That tells you more about God than Jonah. God was so glad to get obedience, reluctance or otherwise. (laughs) That's our God. It tells you more about God than Jonah. It tells you about his mercy. It tells you about his patience. It tells you about his perseverance. It tells you that he honors the smallest amount of obedience, even if it is reluctant obedience. Remind me of Peter. You know, Peter, when the Lord Jesus gets in the boat and he said, Peter, I know you've been fishing for a long time, but just throw the net on this side. (laughs) You remember Peter's reaction? I mean, Lord, come on now. I'm a veteran fisherman. We fished up and down this lake. I mean, Lord, we know this lake like the back of our hands. And for goodness sake, who ever heard about fishing in the middle of the day? But because He said so. Reluctant obedience. And God honored it anyway. Because He said so. And then they got more fish than they can take into one boat. You've heard it said uh, that blessed is he who expects nothing for he is never going to be disappointed. And yet with God, listen to me, with God, and if His Word teach me anything, if it teaches you anything, it teaches you to always expect God to bless obedience. It really does always expect God to make His infinite resources available to His willing and obedient children. Always expect God to fulfill His promises to His trusting children. Always expect that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God. Always expect the knowledge of His glory will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. Always expect to work until no man would say to his neighbor, "'Know the Lord, for He shall know Him from the least to the greatest.'" Always expect him to help you elevate your vision, to see things from his perspective, and to see the fields that are ripe unto the harvest. And all of that is possible because a greater, greater than John had come, taken our flesh, lived among us, born our sin, suffered and died on a cross, and triumphantly rose again from the dead in order to accomplish salvation for everyone who would come to Him. Everyone who would come to Him. For this salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. The name Of Jesus. Shall we pray? Just as the time when a surgeon is about to operate is the most vulnerable time for the patient to get infected, this is the most holy and sacred moment because the Holy Spirit is about to operate and take those words that I have spoken to you. His Word from His Scripture and begin to apply them to your heart. This is a holy moment. That's a sacred moment. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to take those words and tuck them deep into your mind and your heart and your will and ask yourself the question, am I reconciled with the will of God in my life or am I fighting it with every fiber of my being And thus, I'm not contented in life. Let me appeal to you that in the privacy of your heart, say, Lord Jesus, I want to reconcile my life to your will. I cannot demand that you reconcile to mine for I am a sinner repentant by faith and grace saved and begin to experience the joy of that reconciliation.